Dear Father, we ask that you would come close to each one of us just now, and may our time spent discussing Jesus just now bring us to closer trusting relationship with you, healing, and uh, please give us your peace and your joy, and that uh, we may have that inside so that we have that to give to others. Amen. All right, today we're talking about the book of Luke, and we'll look at a number of other additional stories about the life of Jesus, and next time we'll get, as I said, more towards uh, what happened in Gethsemane and the cross, and there's so much to talk about there. And so kind of it's interesting, piecing together all the little details here about Luke. Of course, we know that he was a uh, physician, Paul, you know, that he was, as he would end, many of his letters would talk about different people, and so Luke, our dear doctor, here we referred to in uh, Colossians. And it's interesting, at the very end of Paul's life, at the end of Timothy, Paul said, As for me, the hour has come for me to be sacrificed. The time is here for me to leave this life. And it's interesting, who is with Paul at the very end of his life? Only Luke is with me. And when you think about it, the New Testament was uh, written mainly by Luke, John, and Paul. Luke, really, Luke and Acts are one book, Luke-Acts. Okay, we're going to split them up by putting John in between, but of course both Luke and Acts were written by Luke, and uh, some people think Luke may have been uh, greatly involved with uh, writing other books such as Hebrews, um, but um, anyway, obviously he was a very major person here in contributing to the New Testament, and it's interesting um, how the book of Luke opens up, and he describes why he's writing this. Dear Theophilus, many people have done their best to write a report of the things that have taken place among us. They wrote what we have been told by those who saw these things from the beginning and who proclaimed the message. And so, Your Excellency, because I have carefully studied all these matters from their beginning, I thought it would be good to write an orderly account for you. And we could make a list, I decided not to go into it, but of Luke's Gospel and others, such, such as Matthew, and where Luke very often is the most precise and accurate with uh, many details. But I do this so that you will know the full truth about everything which you have been taught. And so I want to kind of go back. Uh, we're going back and forth here through different aspects of the life of Jesus. But um, let's go to his baptism. And I want to talk mainly about uh, what happened going out into the wilderness of temptation. What was really going on there? And it's interesting here at the baptism of Jesus that we have all three members of the Trinity present. Of course, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, voice of the Father. You are my own dear Son. I am pleased with you. And so, right after this, Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the desert. And if you read the description of this in Mark, it was he was driven out to the desert. The Spirit made him go out to the desert, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now, the other Gospels say after the 40 days, the devil tempted him. But here's a great uh, understatement in the Bible. In all that time, he ate nothing so that he was hungry when it was over. Okay, not surprising. 40 days, and he was hungry when it was over. Now, why did, was he driven out to the desert? And I like trying to put together all these descriptions here of why did Jesus come? And the Son of God appeared for this very reason to destroy what the devil had done. He came to engage in conflict with Satan all right, and to destroy the lies. And so he was driven out to the desert for a purpose. 
it was to meet Satan. And in this encounter, I think we learned some important aspects of uh, what's going on in that great controversy. And it's interesting that, of course, uh, Satan tried very hard to kill Jesus before he was baptized and entered his ministry. And you remember that uh, Herod and they tried to kill the young boys and they fled off to Egypt and uh, Jesus' parents were all over the place trying to protect him. Now, if our model of things is purely that uh, blood had to be shed to take care of the problem for legal reasons, then, of course, that could have happened at childhood. But much more needed to be accomplished. Jesus came to reveal something very important, knowledge, truth about what God is like. He had to live to become an adult and to do all of the things that we read in the four Gospels. And uh, that is what is important. That's why Jesus came. So what happened out here? Well, after the 40 days, the devil said to him, if you are God's son, order this stone to turn into bread. Now, if you were uh, imagining trying to tempt Jesus, and you imagine how much time Satan had to think about this. Um, he's coming, and here's my opportunity. Uh, is this the best he could do? Would this be a temptation for any of us? Um, order this stone to be changed into bread. Would it be a temptation for us? All right, what, what's the temptation there? Do you see, what is, the, what is the red flag word in this sentence here? Yeah, if you're God's son, you just go back here. You are my own dear son. All right, and then if you are God's son, and uh, the implication here is to create doubt, distrust, and that Jesus would say, well, I certainly am, and I'm going to show it to you. All right, so it was a very, very subtle way, if you are God's son. And then, of course, the other aspect here is um, turn this stone into bread. Now, it's interesting. When you go through the whole life of Jesus, is there a single example where Jesus did something uh, miracle or selfishly just for himself? All right. Now, this, this, again, I think is quite subtle here, but Let's just imagine then that Jesus had gone through with this and had said, well, certainly I do have the power. And now watch. In fact, I'm not only going to create bread, but a smorgasbord, I mean, deli palace. And, um, and, uh, and by the way, Satan, I am now going to snap you out of existence. I, I mean, this is the road that this is leading down. Use your power to help yourself. Use your power to do other things like this. I mean, it is just trying to nudge him in that direction. Of course, Jesus answers all of these with a verse, but Jesus answered, the scripture says, human beings cannot live on bread alone. Okay, so Satan's defeated there. How does he come back? Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are God's son, there again is the implied doubt, throw yourself down from here. For the scripture says, God will order his angels to take care of you. It also says they will hold you up with their hands so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. Isn't it incredible here? Satan quoting the Bible. All right, giving Jesus evidence here from the Bible. If you're God's son, look, here are the passages in scripture. God will take care of you. I mean, you are God's son after all. And so let's, let's see a demonstration. Okay, but once again, what would be the point in Jesus doing this? I mean, he came as a human. 
right, with all of the same uh, limitations uh, that comes with humanity. All of his miracles were done through the indwelling and the outflowing of God, uh, his father, complete trust in God. Every action of his life was for others, love others, do for others, do for others. All right, and, and so he came really to demonstrate all law, which ultimately is the law of love, loving others, but other laws as well. What about the law of gravity here? If we jump off a cliff, um, do we suffer consequences? Yes. And so um, Jesus here is just saying, I'm not going down that road. I am loving others. I'm not doing anything for self to prove self. And so again, he answered, Scripture says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And uh, now Satan, I think, in here comes what he really wants. His greatest, deepest desire can't hold it in, I think. He just has to. Then the devil took him up and showed him in a second all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all this power and all this wealth, the devil told him. It has all been handed over to me and I can give it to anyone I choose. Is that true? Uh, all this will be yours then if you worship me. Please. I mean, isn't it amazing here that Satan, you know, he created being and what he wants is worship, craves it. And worship even your God in the flesh. Would you please get down on your knees and worship me? That would be the ultimate, uh, I think, moment of success for Satan. And it's interesting, did Jesus ever ask anyone to worship him? Single time. Now, here we have Satan here, this one encounter. Please, Jesus, worship me. And Jesus never asked anyone to worship him. Okay, you can't command someone to do that. And also, you know, we, Jesus kneels down and washes dirty feet. Here we have kind of the exact opposite, Satan wanting Jesus to kneel down. All right, so, uh, but again, I think there was a temptation here because Jesus knows what is going to happen. He knows about Gethsemane and the cross. He's continually telling his disciples, this is going to happen. It's going to be a horrible thing. I mean, look at his whole life of struggle and strife. And Satan just says, look, I won't bother you. I'll leave you alone. You can have all these people. I'm not going to hassle you. Just kneel down and worship. You won't have to go through all the pain and suffering. All right, but Jesus answered, the scripture says, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. All right, so as it goes on, when the devil finished tempting Jesus in every way, he left him for a while. All right, and I like uh, the message Bible, just have to include this. Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. <laughs> and from what I understand, that really is, uh, it is just the hardest way to tell someone to get lost. So get thee hence, Satan, uh, is not really reflect the power of Jesus' words in telling uh, Satan to, uh, to get lost. All right, and he backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over. The devil left. And in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. This is an important detail to me because imagine this onlooking universe here. Lucifer created an angel. Other angels are there. They're all watching this. And they're watching a fellow angel ask God to kneel down and worship him. So amazing. As soon as they have a chance, they're there to help out. And I think it adds a depth of meaning as we go through these stories to imagine the, the angels who are involved in this as a very much looking on. And they're learning something too through all of this. All right, but this is not the only time. It's, this, this was the 
what Satan pounded home again and again and again as a temptation to Jesus. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Please do a spectacular miracle to prove yourself. This was a temptation again and again. Herod was very pleased when he saw Jesus because he had heard about him and had been wanting to see him for a long time. He was hoping to see Jesus perform some miracle. So Herod asked Jesus many questions, but Jesus made no answer. He did miracles only for others, other-centered at every case. And these subtle things, I mean, you might think, why didn't Jesus just do a little something? I mean, a little bolt of lightning or, or something like that, all right? But, but he never did because it would have been completely exhibiting the principles of Satan's kingdom to use those methods. And severely here, look what he was going through on the cross. People passing by shook their heads and hurled insults at Jesus. You were going to tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. Save yourself if you are God's son. Do something for self. Come on down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders made fun of him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Do something for self, Jesus. Isn't he the king of Israel? Now listen to this. If he will come down off the cross now, we will believe in him. Do you think this was a temptation? I mean, Jesus, he, he loves these people, right? I mean, if I come down off the cross, now maybe they'll all be one. I mean, this was really a temptation. He trusts in God and claims to be God's son. Well, then let us see if God wants to save him now. I think this was a fierce temptation for Jesus to do something. But of course, we sometimes wonder, why doesn't God show up as a big tower of light and fire? And we would all worship him. But it is not what he wants. He wants us to see him for who he is, to love and trust him. And that is important, not that we realize there is a God and that he's powerful. Well, we've talked before about this uh, whole issue with the picture of God and how that really is what everything centers on in my mind. Um, this is not the case, though. I mean, I have a, a friend, who, um, a good friend, who said, well, you know, everyone knows God is love. It's not, um, yeah, it's not that great of a uh, revelation, really. I mean, wouldn't any, every Christian say that God is love? But um, I think if you look through the history of Christianity, have Christians who all acknowledge God as love ever had pictures of God or represented God in ways that are completely contrary to a God of love? I think we could make uh, an extensive list. And it's interesting, uh, you know, you look at your uh, insurance policies for your home and uh, what are you covered against? Everything except acts of God, right? You have to get extra coverage for those acts of God. Um, so the earthquake insurance is just too expensive to, to possibly pay for uh, in this area. But, you know, we, we see things on the news. There's a tsunami or an earthquake. And, uh, you know, the question is discussed, um, you know, what message was God sending to this part of the world? Or, um, you know, where was God when these things happened? Do we imagine God here micromanaging and uh, contributing to all of these uh, disasters? You know, when 9-11 when happened, the discussion on so many talk shows and TV channels was, where was God in 9-11? Uh, God of love. Well, how do we explain these questions? Um, I think, and we just imagine, let's just deal with those terrorists. 
should God say, um, you know what, I am not going to allow anyone to develop such a false warped picture of me that they would think it would be a good idea to kill others, to blow up buildings? Should he give people the freedom to develop such a warped picture of God? Of course, he does give them the freedom. Well, should he say, okay, I'll give you the freedom to develop such a warped picture of God, but I'm not going to allow you to act on it. You can develop that warped picture of God, but I'm not going to allow you to take action on it. I will prevent the consequences of such a thing. I mean, would we like God to do something like that? Well, what about the people on the plane? Should we have God on that day arranging only for rebels to travel from here to there? I mean, do you see the issues that are involved here? And it very much comes down to freedom. Okay, God could stop this. I mean, he could prevent all of these things, but eventually we have God completely controlling, restricting everything. And the one thing that God values above everything, I think, is our freedom. He wants us to freely choose for him. But the people in Jesus' day did not have this picture of God. What about the Pharisees? This was the, this was the single issue, why they rejected Jesus so out of hand. And they said, where is this so-called father of yours? And Jesus said, you're looking right at me and you don't see me. How do you expect to see the father? If you knew me, you would at the same time know the Father. This is the single most important doctrine of Christianity that, in my mind, that we see Jesus is God, God is just like Jesus, however many ways you want to say it. They are exactly the same in character. The Pharisees didn't get it. Well, how about the disciples? Hey, let's read uh, this passage here in Luke as Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. But the people would not welcome or receive or accept him because his face was set as if he was going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, observed this, they said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know of what sort of spirit you are. What sort of spirit is that? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they journeyed on to another village. All right, now, wouldn't you love, after this rebuke by Jesus, for the disciples to have asked a question, you know, Jesus, we were just reading in the Old Testament about this story or that story. Could you explain a little bit about the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah? And uh, this is why we spent a year and a half going through the Old Testament, all right? Because we need to be able to harmonize these things. I think there is a way, really, to believe that God is just like Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, I think we see this is how God will run his kingdom for eternity. Did he ever strike anyone down? Um, you know, he, uh, the two perhaps um, hurtful things, if you want to think about them that way, is the pigs went over the cliff and the fig tree. Pigs and figs, all right? But otherwise, um, he did not uh, eliminate people along the way. Now we have to go back and look into this setting of chaos in the Old Testament and to still come to believe that some of those things happened, but it was the most loving thing to do. And I think in the end, we will really believe God is always doing the most loving thing. But anyway, this was their picture of God. And you can see they didn't get it either. We'll read this maybe next time in John. But this was his discussion with Philip. Jesus said, now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You've seen him? And Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father. That is all we need. And I think 
Philip was saying that is, you know, okay, Jesus, we love you, we trust you, but let's see that God who we've read about. And um, let's, let's see the Father. I mean, it implies a difference between the Son and the Father. Of course, Jesus' response, For a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Okay, eventually it seemed like they got it. And in the writings of John and so on, uh, it really reflects that belief. Well, I think this is why when we go through the parables and so many stories that Jesus gave, he was frequently pointing out the false perception of God. This is not true about God. This is not true about God. Of course, he brought truth, but he also had to point out the error. So we read the story of the gold coins and the man who buried his gold coin in the ground. And here's the description. Another servant came and said, Sir, here is your gold coin. I kept it hidden in a handkerchief. Hey, why did you do that? I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what is not yours and reap what you did not plant. So notice the description of the one person who didn't make use of his talent. The description is he believes God to be a hard man and he believes that God takes what is not his and he reaps what he did not plant. Okay, and the response comes back, I will use your own words to condemn you. And I think that is exactly how it works. We have a picture of God that is perhaps completely counter to Jesus. If that were the case, that has a direct reflection back on ourselves. All right, and so it is our own words, our own thoughts, our own beliefs about God that have a natural reaction back against us that will lead us to a horrible outcome. Okay, just another uh, example here. And there are two of these. One is in uh, Luke 18. Jesus told them a story showing that it was necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. He said, there was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought and cared nothing for people. A widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated. Protect me. He never gave her the time of day. But after this went on and on, he said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think, but because this widow won't quit badgering me, I better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten back and blue by her pounding. And then the master said, Do you hear what that judge, corrupt as he is, is saying? So what makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who continue to cry out for help? So he is saying... You know, this picture of a judge with arms folded who has to be persuaded to do something is exactly the opposite of the reality of what God is really like. Won't he stick up for them? I assure you he will. He will not drag his feet. But how much that kind of persistent faith will the Son of Man find on the earth when he returns? Okay, another parable very similar to it in Luke 11. And Jesus said to his disciples, Suppose one of you should go to a friend's house at midnight and say, friend, let me borrow three loaves of bread. A friend of mine who is on a trip has just come to my house and I don't have any food for him. And suppose your friend should answer from inside, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children are I in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Well, what then? I tell you that even if he will not get up and give you the bread because you are his friend, yet he will get up and give you everything you need because you are not ashamed to keep on asking. All right, now is this the parallel with God? He doesn't really want to get up and help us. Um, but if we keep pounding on the door, 
eventually he will, um, all right, and get up and he'll do something. Is this the parallel? Or is God saying, I'm exactly not like this friend who would not be willing to get up? And so now we get to the, the key text here. And so I say to you, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. For those who ask will receive, and those who seek will find, and the door will be open to anyone who knocks. Would any of you who are fathers give your son a snake when he asks for a fish? Or would you give him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? As bad as you are, you know how to give good things to your children. Okay, now we often stop here, uh, but I think, what are we to ask for? And we imagine, well, I can ask for anything. What does God want us to ask for? Well, we get the answer. How much more then will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is what we are to desire, the Holy Spirit. All right, now this gets back to something we talked about earlier, so I won't go through all the text here, but what are we asking for when we ask for the Holy Spirit? It comes back to our same uh, theme here. Jesus defined it. The Helper will come, the Spirit. What does he do? He reveals the truth about God. This is always the foundation. It's so repetitious. When the Spirit comes, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. What would all the truth be? Well, all the truth about God. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. This is ultimately what we are to ask and to crave for because all the other good things are a natural outflow of having that internalization of the truth about God and to be in that healing relationship with Him. Well, um, I want to get to, this is be a last section here on Luke because eventually I want to talk about the rich man and Lazarus because I think it's probably the, one of the most difficult stories, it's probably the most difficult story that Jesus told. And I want to explain that by actually going through, uh, this is a series of five parables. The rich man and Lazarus was the last one told. They're all in one setting with the Pharisees. And um, I think it's important we go through this because... Um, this is used by many as a uh, the proof about a, um, a place of hell where there is physical torture and so on for eternity. And so I think um, you'll at least hear another way perhaps of looking at this story. All right, But let's look at the five parables together and then let's see if we can make sense of them. Now it's important to know the setting. One day when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling, as they always did when he hung out with people of low society and who were sinners. Uh, this man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. All right, now this is the setting of these five parables. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? You leave the other 99 sheep in the pasture and go looking for the one that got lost until you find it. When you find it, you are so happy that you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home. Then you call your friends and neighbors together and say to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people who do not need to repent. Now, who would the Pharisees assume they are in this story? They're the 99. Right? They're the good ones. They're the respectable people who don't need to repent. Um, is that the reality of the situation? No, actually, it's the sinners who are 
the ones who are getting good with God here, and it is the Pharisees. They don't know it, but I find it very interesting that Jesus starts out this way, um, and I think it is, you know, look, God is so happy that these sinners are repenting, and you know what? You should be too. And it is, I think, should evoke some feeling like, boy, that, that is really right, isn't it? I mean, we should be trying to win all of these people who are rebels. And I think this actually is the right thing. I mean, I think it was to stimulate in them the natural thought that, of course, we should be kind to sinners, and of course, we should try to win them. He didn't condemn them at all in this parable. Okay, did they get the message? Apparently not, because now we go on with another one. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins loses one of them. What does she do? She lights a lamp, sweeps her house, and looks carefully everywhere until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says to them, I am so happy I found the coin I lost. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, the angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. Very similar to the parable of the sheep, right? It's, again, re-emphasizing God is looking for those people desperately, cleaning the house, sweeping, and, and when he finds one, when he's able to win one, it is a reason for rejoice in heaven. And don't you Pharisees think that's right? Okay, but they didn't get it again. So now he comes with the story of the prodigal son, which is a long uh, parable. Uh, it's one of my favorite, but just for, for time here, I think you all know the story about the son who goes off, wastes his father's wealth, and is in the pig pen. And... So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him out of his farm to take care of the pigs. Okay, so he's there taking care of the pigs and he wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. At last he came to his senses and said, all my father's hired workers have more than they can eat and here I am about to starve. I will get up and go to my father and say, father, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. So he got up and started back to his father. And of course, I love this part here. He was still a long way from home. When his father saw him, his heart was filled with pity and he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Very consistent with the other two parables, the lost sheep, uh, there's rejoicing, the lost coin. The same emphasis from, from God's perspective here who is desperately out uh, trying to, to win his lost children. All right, but this ends differently, though. And we can get into a lot of theology here. It's interesting. The son comes with a plan for a speech of repentance, and it's the way the father just cuts it off and says, hey, just forget about it. You're home. That's it. That's all that matters. But he kissed him, and father, the son, said, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer be fit to be called your son, and uh, the father will have none of this speech. The father called to his servants, hurry, he said, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, then go and get the prize calf and kill it and let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he's been found. And so the feasting began. And if the parable ended right there, it would parallel the, the previous two parables all right, except now we get a little more depth about the father having great pity. While he's a long way off, he's looking for him. All right, but now something becomes very directed toward these Pharisees who are condemning Jesus for hanging out with sinners. In the meantime, the older son was out in the field. Could they not help but identify themselves with the older son? And on his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? 
Your brother has come home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prize calf because he got him back safe and sound. And the older brother was so overjoyed that his brother was back that he ran out to... No, the older brother was so angry that he would not go in the house. So his father came out and begged him to come in. But he spoke back to his father. Look, all these years I've worked for you like a slave and I've never disobeyed your orders. And think about the Pharisees, the external things that they did right. We've been through the list many times, the tithing, the church attendance, the Sabbath keeping, like slaves, obeying, right down the list. What have you given me? Not even a goat for me to have a feast with my friends. But this son of yours wasted all your property on prostitutes, and when he comes back home, you kill the prized calf for him. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy, because your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. This had to hurt, all right, because now Jesus is just slowly shifting the focus to their attitude, and they cannot help but to identify here with the, with the uh, older brother. Okay, but it continues on. And the next one here, it's a very difficult parable that for time I won't go through, but this is the parable of the shrewd manager. Very, very interesting parable. I'll just read Jesus' interpretation or conclusion about this parable. And he said, If then you have not been faithful in handling worldly wealth, how can you be trusted with true wealth? Right? This is the Pharisees' problem. They're selfish. They're trying to always get for self, money, power. This is what was important to them. And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what belongs to you? No servant can be the slave of two masters. Such a slave will hate one and love the other or will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right Now, we know the Pharisees were still here in this progression of five parables because when the Pharisees heard all this, they made fun of Jesus because they loved money. Right, so now it's getting ugly a little bit all right, because they very clearly see Jesus is dividing a line and is showing them what side they're on. Okay, it gets more interesting. Jesus said to them, You are the ones who make yourselves look right in other people's sight, but God knows your hearts. For the things that are considered of great value by people are worth nothing in God's sight. The law of Moses and the writings of the prophets were in effect up to the time of John the Baptist. Since then, the good news about the kingdom of God is being told and everyone forces their way in. All these sinners are forcing their way in. And you people, you Pharisees, teachers of the law, you are the ones who are not forcing your way in. Very, very direct. And so Jesus here, I think he's made his point. But I think he goes on because he has to make it very difficult for these children that he loves, if they're going to reject him, he's going to make it very hard for them. And so he goes on with a very difficult story, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. There was once a rich man who dressed in the most expensive clothes and lived in great luxury every day. Okay, they would identify uh, that man with uh, themselves. But there was also a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who was used to be brought to the rich man's door, hoping to eat the bites of food that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Okay, now, their assumption here is, uh, the mindset, remember, was if you're rich, you're blessed by God, by definition. If you're rich, you are especially chosen by God. If you're poor, if you're sick, you're not. That's just the, that was the mindset, 
All right, so they're comfortable with this so far. The rich man, he's good. Lazarus, he's bad. Now, here's where it breaks down. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the feast in heaven. That does not fit. The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades, where he was in great pain, now imagine the shock here, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool off my tongue, because I am in great pain in this fire. But Abraham said, remember, my son, that in your lifetime you were given all the good things while Lazarus got all the bad things but now he is enjoying himself here while you are in pain. Besides all that, there is a deep pit lying between us so that those who want to cross, cross over from here to you cannot do so, nor can anyone cross over to us from where you are. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house where I have five brothers. Let him go and warn them so that they at least will not come to this place of pain. Abraham said, your brothers have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Your brothers should listen to what they say. And the rich man answered, That is not enough, Father Abraham. But, and I think here we're getting to the point, if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from death. Now, it's a difficult story, but I think there are uh, a couple of different ways of looking at this. I'm not going to read through this. I'll, I'll have it on the website so you can read it later. Let me just say that Jesus' parable fit perfectly with their belief about the afterlife. When you die, you go to a place. If you're good, you go to Abraham's bosom. If you're bad, you go to this uh, kind of a holding place, a place of uh, pain and suffering. And uh, the words here of Josephus describe in horrible detail uh, the torture that was involved in this place. This was the belief in the day. And, uh, you know, the good are led with hymns sung by angels to a place where they wait for the rest and eternal life in heaven, which is to succeed this reason, this place we call the bosom of Abraham. And it describes this chasm and the place of torture. So he told a parable that fit exactly with their mindset in the day. Was that wrong of Jesus to do that? Well, hell... To these belong unquenchable fire. Again, this is from Josephus. And that without end. And certain fiery worm never dying and not destroying the body, but continuing its eruption of the body with never ceasing grief. Neither will sleep give ease to these men, nor will the night afford them comfort. Death will not free them from punishment. This was the belief. Now, there are a couple of ways of looking at this. One is, this is not a parable. It is a literal story. It is meant... The details in the story fit. Okay, are there any problems with taking a literal approach to this parable? Um, I see a number of you nodding your heads, but these are just a couple and go through too many. But do we still believe? Does Christianity just as a whole believe that at death we go to Abraham's bosom? I'm not aware of uh, people that, that currently believe that. I'm just saying if we're going to take this literally, how literal should we take it? And what about this chasm in between? Can you imagine a chasm in between the righteous and the unrighteous, and we are able to communicate and to have people who are suffering talk with us in this chasm. Is that what the Bible describes? And actually, if, um, if you were in this place of torture, would you want just a drop of water on your tongue? Wouldn't you ask for a bucket or, or something, you know, something more substantial? 
And also, yeah, just if the soul is apart from the body at death, is there a need to, to cool the, a physical tongue? No, this is making a point. And it's also just a, as an interesting thing, but kind of technical. The word here is Hades at death. This is the sleep death. And this is the only case in the entire Bible where punishment is associated with the word Hades. Okay, so I think the point here is this is a parable which is meant to have a take-home message. And a parable, by definition, makes one or two points. A parable is not meant to make 50 points of doctrine. A parable is meant to bring home a certain point. Now, what was the point? Again, we said, who's the rich man? He's the blessed man. He's the good person by, by their understanding. Who is Lazarus? Um, it's interesting here. Why did Jesus choose the name Lazarus? Would it have something to do with his interpretation? But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone were to rise from death. And the resurrection of Lazarus, four days in the tomb, sometimes called the crowning miracle of Jesus. And um, what, what, how would you reject someone who just resurrected someone who had been dead in the tomb for four days? But of course, they were not convinced by the resurrection of Lazarus. And in fact, if we want to apply it further, they were not convinced by the resurrection of Jesus. So the take-home message is, you have all of this evidence, all of these things, you're not even going to be convinced by uh, this, this resurrection. And we read the story after the resurrection of Lazarus. From that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too, because on his account, many Jews were rejecting them and believing in Jesus. And so the point was, I think, that here they have this story, and then, who knows, maybe some of them were one. The resurrection of Lazarus, and they got to thinking about it. And then the resurrection of Jesus, this story, was it true? And maybe they looked back on this story, the rich man and Lazarus, and maybe some of those people um, were actually one to God's side because of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But I think the point it makes is that God seems to make it very hard for us to permanently reject and to leave his side. And he's even willing to stoop, I think, to tell a story like this, the rich man and Lazarus, which we try to fit all of our theology and point by point through this. I think the point is he's trying to reach these people. It's a last ditch desperation effort and he even meets them at their theology, tells a story they can identify with to try to bring them out of that. And I think there's even much to admire about God in a story like the rich man and Lazarus. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we uh, admire so much about you, especially as we see your life, your words, your actions. And uh, most impressive of all is even these people who we may condemn and despise, who treated you so poorly, these Pharisees, that we see that, um, that you cared for them and that you were even trying to win them. And perhaps it is easier for us, as we were told, to love our enemies when we see that uh, you yourself as God, that you also love your enemies. Amen.